All right. All right, we have a significant topic. I want to give, I said this, we posted it on social media and put it on the weekly email. Um, people use this word too often, but I do want to give a, we'll say a trigger warning. Um, so we've sent this, this be, this, uh, our children's church to fourth and fifth graders. This is a sensitive topic we're addressing this morning as we're going to talk about a sexual assault. And I particularly want to be sensitive to those of you in the room who've experienced this. And so if you need to leave at some point, that is totally appropriate. Your voice was taken from you at some point. And part of regaining that voice is to stand up and speak when something is too much for you. Why do we need to cover this at all? I'm sure there's some folks in the room <laughs> who would have liked to said, you know, can I go out with the fourth and fifth graders today? Um, sadly, we have to cover this, this topic because of how prevalent it is. Because it is an enormous problem. The stats we do have say that one in four women and one in six men will be victimized by sexual assault. That is, though, far limited because we, it is believed that only 10 to 20 percent of sexual assaults are actually reported. The FBI says that this type of crime is one of the most underreported of all the crimes that they categorize. And this is most often true because so many of the victims are so awfully young and unable to speak for themselves. Often people are embarrassed to share because the assault comes from someone they know, a relative, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, a date, a coach, a youth pastor, a therapist, a neighbor, a physician. And it's not simply a problem out there somewhere. It's a Christian problem. It's a church problem. The, Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church has gotten lots of press over the last 20 years because of this. Literally hundreds and maybe thousands of various priests around the world using their positions in order to abuse others. The SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, for the last decade has been roiled in conflict for years now because potentially hundreds of pastors have been allowed to go utterly unchecked, moving from church to church to carry on their patterns of abuse. The homeschool group that I was a part of, the national one, the Basic Institutes of Christian Living, some of you are aware of this group, they had a, group, a books called The Character Sketches. Their leader named Bill Gothard, the stories that have flown up from this homeschool factory go, have not been testimonies of God's grace, but instead have been testimonies of sexual abuse. He being the leading candidate, grooming women, throughout his ministry. And this is not simply a problem out there in other denominations and in other churches as if we are beyond this. This is a King's Chapel sorrow. A couple years ago, when I was still very young and I was not responding yet, I, was not, I did not have the ability in that time to necessarily hold all these stories, but the, the issue began to become to my forefront when for six months straight, month after month, a woman would share with me her experience of sexual assault. One woman shared with me that when she was 13 years old, her mother's boyfriend, over a period of time, raped her repeatedly, impregnated her, and then forced her to have an abortion. Another one young woman shared that late in high school was found that a small hidden camera had been placed in her bathroom. It had been put there by her stepfather. I've had young men share their encounters with sexual abuse. Women in their 60s whispered to me after worship services, me too. And 70-year-old men reflect on the time when it happened to them more than half a century ago. 
To not talk about this is apologetically irresponsible. And by that I mean for our children. Our children need to be convinced and understand that the gospel is not for little white lies only and for the things of this world that are not nice. They need to be convinced that the gospel actually goes to the deepest sorrows that we experience. And to not talk about this is pastorally irresponsible. To not talk about this is to affirm the messages and fears of those to whom this has happened, that it's simply too dirty to be talked about. It tells victims that they can't share. It tells them that they won't be believed. It tells them to remain in hiding. And it tells them that no one cares. And worst of all, it's a theological problem because it tells them something about God. That he doesn't care, for he is silent. But brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you this morning that he is not. Lisa Knight's going to read to us our fairly lengthy scriptures this morning. If you want to turn your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 13. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon laid down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him. But he refused to eat. And Amnon said, "Send, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes that she had made and and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near near him to eat, he took hold of her hand and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king 
for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this, is, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, may the aggrieved be comforted, and those who are too comfortable be aggrieved. Would you do a healing work by the power of the Spirit? Amen. There's a number of books that I would recommend to you. I'll post them at various times this week for the social media. Meredith and Rachel, please remind me to do so. One of them is called Rid of My Disgrace by a man named Justin Holcomb. He defines sexual assault in this way. Our definition of sexual assault is any time of sexual behavior or contact where consent is not freely given or obtained and is accomplished through force, intimidation of violence, coercion, manipulation, deception, or abuse of authority. The laws generally assume that a person does not consent to sexual conduct if he or she is forced, threatened, or unconscious, drugged, a minor, developmentally disabled, or believes that they are in the midst of a medical procedure. In the text I just read to you, we have the textbook example of assault. But not just for the physical actions taken, but for the grooming that went on beforehand and the heart behind it. It is clear in verses 12, 14, and 22 that Amnon's actions of assault are violating, shameful, forceful, and naturally humiliating. Tragically, Tamar's experiences here includes manipulation, force, violence, and negation of her will and her voice. It is textbook because it is ultimately not about sex. It is about violence and power. Violence permeates his words and his actions. The words used to describe Amnon's feelings and physical state express sick emotions rather than life-giving ones. Amnon reduces Tamar to a disposable object. He commands his servants saying, get this woman out of my sight. He barely speaks of her as a person. She is a thing that Amnon now wants to throw out. To him, Tamar is trash. The intensity of Amnon's desire for Tamar was matched only by the intensity, it says, with which he hated her. But far more than simply being a story of sexual assault, and that's all it is, 
This is a story that actually gives the full range of the effects of sexual assault. And in the negative terms, by the gaps in the story, by the things that are not there, it points to our desperate need for a champion and for healing. Let's look at what this text can teach us. First is the disgrace. The disgrace. Verse 13 is the most, maybe the most key line. Where will I go with my shame? How, in some interpretations, how will I be rid of my disgrace, she said. In this text, Tamar experiences the emotional and physical trauma. She displays the full range of the effects of one who has been victimized by sexual abuse. The only thing more staggering than the prevalence of abuse is the acute damage done to victims. The effects are physical, social, emotional, psychological, and they are spiritual. Let me give, what are some of the effects? I'm going to just give you some that I've actually boiled down from about half of what you could read in most literature. The effects are these. Physical injury, STDs, nausea, insomnia, stomach pain, loss of appetite, self-blame, embarrassment, fear, anger, anxiety, sexualized behavior, compulsive promiscuity, loss of sexual identity or gender confusion, depression, social withdrawal, emotional deadness, flashbacks, shock, mood swings, OCD, panic attacks, extreme dependency on other relationships, impaired ability to judge others' trustworthiness. In other words, your, true, your chooser in relationships is broken. Phobias and hypervigilance, aggression, impaired memory, suicidal tendencies, PTSD, and self-mutilation. Victims of sexual assault are three times more likely than non-victims to suffer from depression, six times more likely to suffer from PTSD, 13 times more likely to abuse alcohol, 26 times more likely to abuse drugs, and four times more likely to contemplate suicide. Sexual assault is not simply an event that happened to you in the past. It is as real now for most as it was then. And the most common effects in regards to the soul and how people respond to it is denial or downplaying for one. This is the unwillingness or the inability to acknowledge what happened. And you can understand why, right? There is a deep reluctance to admit the damage that has occurred. It stirs up the pain associated with it. And who wants to do that? We try to silence ourselves. We do things like downplaying it by comparing it to the suffering of others. My suffering was not that bad compared to blank. But suffering and victimization is not a competitive sport. Simply because the Holocaust happened doesn't mean you weren't suffering today. Simply because someone got hit by a bus doesn't mean my knee surgery is not painful. Others will involve and have extreme senses of guilt and self-blaming is where they go. I associated with the wrong people. I shouldn't have been there. I was too immodest. I was too flirtatious. I drank too much. I should have told someone. I should have resisted more. For others, the fallout is often leads to destructive relational coping mechanisms. Things that we look to immediately after such trauma, things that help us survive, become coping mechanisms that actually ultimately destroy. Diane Langberg wrote a book called The Hope of, On the Threshold of Hope, which is maybe the best book I've read on the topic. She says this, abuse shapes you. Abuse results in a life lived in reaction to, in protection against, and in defiance of a horror you would like to forget. When you are subjected to sexual abuse, powerful forces are released within you, which make it especially difficult for you to connect with other people. The mantra of your life becomes, I will never be hurt again. I will never be powerless. I will never allow myself to be betrayed in this way again. Sadly, 
And very often, the context of one's abuse often becomes the, 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 the context in which the, those who are abused become abusers themselves. They become controller of others, a user of, a user of others in order to protect themselves. In the context of sexual assault, they lose, some lose a sense of identity so that simply the other relationships are there to help them form their own identity. They become at times abusers because the drive of self-protection is so great. One counselor that, and professor I had in seminary said, we are sinned against sinners. We are sinned against sinners. And while the sins of the past that have been done to us does not mitigate our responsibility of the sins that we, we commit in the future, it does give a context and understanding for it. We, all our coping mechanisms, which are understandable and often worked to help us survive in the months and the years afterwards, often lead to destructive measures in our life. Dan Allender, who wrote a book called The Wounded Heart, said this, to the degree that we labor to keep ourselves intact, we become less human, less loving, and more like those who are cavalierly abused and dehumanized for their own survival. The honest person will admit that even though her survival strategies have won her a sense of safety, she is not living as she was created to live. In the hollow chambers of her heart, she is lonely as hell. But the core effect, the root effect of such abuse is disgrace. Or the word that's used in our culture more prevalently is shame. Second Samuel 13, 12, she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not to be done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? A careful study of Tamar's actions all after her assault reveal in her outward appearance the inward effects of shame and disgrace. Verse 19, Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore and she laid her head, hands on her head and she went away crying aloud as she went. There's four clauses in this one verse that describe Tamar's state. First clause, she puts ashes on her head. Dressing the head with ashes, with a headdress, symbolizes dignity. But to take that headdress off and to put ashes on instead means that you're something loathsome, that you have lost value, that you're in a place of disgrace and humiliation. Second clause, she tears her robe. The robe, it was a symbol of her virginity and her status as a king's daughter. She tears it. She has lost her dignity. Clause three, she puts her hands on her head. The book of Jeremiah describes the image of hands on the head to express shame. Covering the head with one's hands and throwing ashes on the head is a double image, intensifying the expression of the abused person's state of both grief and shame. And then perhaps most haunting of all is that we see that she leaves crying and we are not said where she goes. The image there is left of Tamar wandering aimlessly with her torn dress, wailing like one in mourning, publicly announcing her grief and her disgrace. The assault has reduced her to a place of aimless, wandering despair. Shame is the major effect under all the others. The victims of sexual assault feel dirty, rejected, filthy, alone, and lost. Describing the suffering of shame, Dan Allender and Tripper Longman, Tripper Longman, um, they're good friends. Longman is one of the best Old Testament scholars we have, said this, to be covered in shame is to feel the self as engulfed in something disgusting, even hideous. Shame is the traumatic exposure of nakedness. This is experienced when we feel the lance of a gaze, tearing open the various coverings we put on. What is revealed, we feel, is an inner ugliness. 
To be full of shame is to believe that you are stained and that there is no grace that will unstain you. A number of years ago, there was mid-2013, 2014, I think, there was a guy named Bill Zeller whose um, death became highly publicized. He was a a Princeton student. He was highly accomplished academically, already well-advanced in the scientific field when he committed suicide. It made national news not just because of how he how accomplished he was, but because he left a long explanation for why he was taking his own life. He said this, and it's an incredible description of shame. He said, my first memories as a child are of being raped repeatedly. This has affected every aspect of my life. Describing the dramatic impact of abuse on his everyday life, he said, I feel like I'm trapped in a contaminated body that no amount of washing could clean. Forced to cope with the demands of life, he binged on work, he exercised tirelessly, he drank compulsively, he fought insomnia and exhaustion. He did anything and everything he could to get rid of the feelings of this disease that he felt he had, but to no avail. These are the awful, life-altering, and life-orienting effects of sexual assault. And here's what I want to say to you my dear brothers and sisters who have been victims of this. It is not your fault. You are not responsible. You're a one who is made in the image of God, who is made with worth and dignity, who displays his glory. It is not your fault. No one had the right to violate you in that way. You are not responsible for what happened to you. And as a part of our worship, Joel showed us this after this morning, we can proclaim the goodness of Jesus and then cry out, how long? And so part of our worship today is to simply look at you in the eye and say, we are so sorry. And I am so sorry. An important question asked by assault victims is echoed in verse 13. Where can I get rid of the shame? And do we see an answer in the text? No. Her question is left unanswered. Absalom, her brother, how did he respond? He got ticked and killed Amnon later on, but what did he tell her to do? Shh, just be quiet. Don't take it to heart. Her dad gets angry, and he does nothing. The king and the father does nothing. And even that is representative. God is not mentioned one time. One time. But God was not absent despite all appearances. You know, God is not mentioned one time in the story of Esther either. The whole book. You know, the Bible is a beautiful literary device in which sometimes the gaping holes tell you where to look. Ralph Davis, who's a great Old Testament scholar, said this, God is not absent despite all appearances. He has not hung a vacancy sign over the universe and over his people. What does Tamar need? She needs a father and she needs a king who will rise up and who will be her champion. Isaiah chapter 19, verse 20 says that what we need, what the oppressed need, is a savior and a healer. And that is the champion that we so desperately need. The champion 
the champion. And that is who Jesus came to be. In Isaiah chapter 61, it says, he has come to bind up the brokenhearted. Tamar's champion, what does he do? Listen, here I'm going to try to point a little bit to the gospel. I spent most of this week trying to just, what's the aspect of the gospel I need to hone in on? There's so much. And the beauty of the gospel is it is a multifaceted, like a diamond or like a, a crystal in which the sun is hitting it from a thousand different directions. And there is so much beauty there that you can, in your healing, grab hold of. But I simply am going to tell you two. Her champion first bore her shame. God rarely provides simple answers to our suffering. He provides something far more profound. He says, I will enter into your suffering itself, and I will walk with you in it. Jesus joins us in our shame. I, I've preached a sermon twice over my time here in which I particularly reflect on the specific aspects in the way Jesus experienced shame on the cross. Jesus says, what's the nature of some of the adjectives we gave from the Old Testament of what shame is? Naked, cast out, alone, betrayed. What is the cross? Jesus is mocked and he is beaten and he is stripped down to nakedness. His cries, he cries out. Does he get an answer? He gets silence from God. But he gets silence and he gets shame so that he may walk that road with you, not simply in solidarity, but to bear the very shame that you experienced. Diane Langberg again, she said, I will never encounter anything that Jesus has not borne. He came in the flesh and entered in and bore our darkness alone and forsaken. But Jesus does not simply experience your shame. He removes it and he replaces it. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says, He endured our shame and then he despised the shame. He despises the shame. What that means is he, is he hates what has been done to you. And he says, I will take it upon myself. This is a very important concept for us to understand. And this is where the depth of theology actually helps us. It is not simply that Jesus takes your sin from you. And there's other places where it says that when he he died, you died. It's not something that he took your sin from you to extricate it from you and put that away. He took all of you, all that you've done, and all that has been done to you in this broken and sorry and pitiful world, and he put it to death. That's how much he hates the shameful things that have been done to you. He said, this is how much I hate it. I will dive into death itself, and I will insert it there at the depths of hell. You know, the passage in Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from his west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Well, you know what? He does the same thing about the transgressions that have been committed against you. And then he replaces our shame with what? A robe of righteousness. You see, Jesus was killed to bear our shame on the cross and to offer a new robe of righteousness. He came and he lived a life and he lived perfectly righteous in the face of disgrace. Jesus says, I'm going to take your nakedness. I will take your nakedness on the cross and I will instead replace your nakedness with the robe of my righteousness so that you are beautiful in my sight. Tamar asks, what can get rid of my disgrace? And Jesus says, my grace can get rid of your disgrace. My righteousness. Her champion bore her shame. Her champion also crowns her with worth. With worth. Remember, the shame of sexual assault speaks to us in our own worthlessness. It lies to us. 
Sexual assault is like a poison that embeds into your system, lies about who you are, lies about who you need to be, lies about how to be safe, lies about your body, lies about your future, and lies about your worth. Perhaps you've been living so long with the belief that your abuse has either defined you or left you with no identity at all. And then often we join our abusers. The abuse fashioned so we fashion stories about ourselves. We write narratives about our lives based around the abuse that we have endured. David Paulson says this, though. There's a different identity we can have. He said, abuse feels like an experience that has stamped you and has that it has the final word on your identity. But the truth is, God gives you the, a different identity. You're not what your history says you are. You're not what your abuser said you are and how he treated you. You're not what your beliefs say and even what your feelings say about you. What grace offers to a victim experiencing disgrace is the gift of refuting the distortions of the evil that has been done to them. It's to replace those counterfactual beliefs with right beliefs and right thinking about how God views you and who you are. The gospel is rewriting the narrative about what is most true about your life. And our champion has declared this in both word and deed. Let me just give you two examples out of, I think, hundreds that you can assess. Two ways in which Jesus has declared your worth over you. One is he has expressed it in the justice of the cross. The cross declares that God cares about justice for you. Research has shown that one of the greatest needs for a survivor of abuses to have is their experience regarded as significant. It was no small thing. It was a shattering, enormous thing because you are precious. And while society and even the church will downplay the evils of abuse, the righteous anger of God validates the abused by pursuing justice for us. Some of you may know the name Rachel Den Hollander. She was the primary voice and she was the last witness to stand up and give testimony against Larry Nasser. She was a gymnast in the USA gymnast system and she was abused by him. She grew up and later confronted him. She became a lawyer and she married a guy who has a doctorate in theology and the two together are writing on this topic and they wrote this in a paper a couple months ago. A victim's sense of injustice and desire for vindication is upheld at the cross. Injustice and unrighteousness in real, and God hates it, and he hates it so much it's displayed at the cross. God calls sexual assault what it is, violence, evil, and sin. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't ignore your hurt. Your dignity as an image bearer of God has been assaulted, and it is an assault against him because you reflect his glory. Being his people establishes your identity and your worth. Whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. Rachel, when she stood before the judge, <clears throat> she asked the judge to impose the maximum sentence on Larry Nasser. Not out of vindication, not out of hate. This is a believer who has forgiven, but she said this. Den Hollander said, how much is a little girl worth? She answered her own questions. These victims are worth everything. I plead with you to impose the maximum center under the plea agreement because everything is everything. Everything is what these survivors are worth. It is at the cross where we see that sin and evil and the sin and the evil that is committed against you is no small thing because you are no small thing. 
Second is simply the worth given to your body. This is an amazing thing. Have you ever thought about this? One of the experiences of, of, of sexual assault is to make us wonder about our body. It reduces a person in the eyes of the abuser to just a body, separating soul and body for some. The body becomes the enemy. If my body allowed me to be hurt, then I view my body as something which betrayed me. Perhaps even gender. My gender is what made me, I'm too weak. This is what made me attractive to an abuser. If something is treated like trash, we begin to believe it. But our champion has spoken worth about your physical body. Because Jesus came and he chose to live in what? He is not a disembodied soul. He has a body. And there is a body in heaven in its glorified state, standing before the throne. A body. And not only that, but the beauty of the gospel of the Pentecost. Where does he reside now? If you have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, God himself is in your body. Now, how we get wrap our minds around that and what that means for him spiritually to reside within our physical body, that is difficult for us to comprehend, but he says you are now the temple of the Lord. And he is renewing you from, some, from the inside out so that one day you will shed this body and out will come not just a spirit, but a new and glorified body. As one abuse survivor that I read this week, she said this, one day, one day I will have a new body that does not keep the score. Jesus values you with such worth, even your body, that he's willing to come and dwell within you. You are his treasure, his beauty, his child, his son, his baby, his little girl. You are the apple of his eye. You are his bride. You are pure and untarnished, without spot or wrinkle, unblemished, covered in the white wedding grounds of Christ's righteousness. And it is only as you swim in the sea of those truths that the healing process will begin. But make, make no bones about it. There is no quick fix to heal. This is one that will take time. The gospel rewrites our story, but rewrites it over a period of time. Here's what David Paulson says in his book, Recovering from Child Abuse. The damage you suffered may have been done in one or more terrible moments the healing and the restoration unfolds, though, at a human pace. You know, trauma is defined as it's, a, it's, something, it's more than you can handle. That's essentially what trauma is. It's a suffering that's more than you can handle. But this happens at a, his healing happens at a human pace. It unfolds at your pace. It unfolds as a part of your story. Sometimes Christians make you feel that if you just get the answer to your problem, you can apply it and your problem will be instantly solved. As if intellectually acknowledging something means that your soul is healed. But that's not God's way. God is a vine dresser who carefully and slowly prunes his vines through the years. God works in us on the scales of years and lifetimes. So the healing, the healing, the process of healing is going to involve this. The sorrow-filled experience of sharing your story amongst God's people. This is counter to what the world the church, and even your own feelings will screen at you, which they will all say this. Stay silent. Shh. Do you see the Tamar account? What's his response? Hey, be quiet, sister. Stop your grieving. Don't talk about it. Just don't think about it. Don't take it to heart. He would rather have kept her assaults and suffering hidden 
David does nothing. They care more about the family name and the family ways than about her healing. Dan Allender says this, gives this account, I recall the plaintive words of a young woman who was facing memories of abuse perpetrated by her father, a respected pastor. She said, I'd rather be dead than face the truth of the memories. If I admit the memories, then they're true. I'll be totally abandoned by my parents, my family, and my church. If I continue to live a lie, though, I'll slowly rot from the inside out. Pretending all is well when I know I'm a zombie. Did you hear her choices? It was lie, stay silent, and die slowly. Or talk and be cut off by her family, her friends, and her church. Silence has the effect of multiplying the problem. You know, in Thailand, if you go to Thailand, you'll notice that they have, it's highly sexualized. It's known for one of those places where people go for sexcapades of various kinds. But it has an enormous transvestite population. They're called the lady boys. And when, when asked about it, a missionary said that it's because of the culture of sexual abuse of children is so rampant in the culture in Thailand. And this dynamic added with a dynamic that is of high respect for your elders, for your adults, means no one says anything. Children are not allowed to say anything about uncles and fathers and grandfathers who abuse them. And so they're, they're never met challenged or confronted. And so the children grow up terribly sexually confused as a result of what's happened to them. Silence just rots us. But it's not just those around us who tell us to be quiet. The shame and the pain tells us to remain silent as well. Diane Langbury again says this, to speak is awful because the telling of the story makes the story real. When we begin to share, we begin to feel again. And the reason we are not honest is we don't want to feel that pain and that sorrow. When the abuse into the horror of the past, it feels a terrible price has to be paid, like going in and having a bone rebroken in order to let it sit and fix correctly. It is not surprising that people say, I don't want to heal if it's going to involve that much pain. And the results of silence will waste you away. Instead of slowly giving you life, silence will slowly erode your life. Do you see where the text ends? To not speak will leave you in the place of Tamar. Verse 20. And she lived in her brother's house in desolation. It's the image of emptiness. But the gospel is the safe place that invites you to so much more. The gospel invites you to speak and to give voice to your sorrow. You know, you were created in the image of a living God. And what does God do? He speaks. And so you embrace your image bearing and you give a voice. We speak to a God as well who is acquainted with our sorrows, who invites us to bear our griefs, our anger and our doubts and our questions to him. And you have anger and you have doubts and you have questions. Hiding them does not help. Take them to him. To speak, though, is like tearing off a scab. It's a courageous act. It is a courageous act to refuse to remain dead inside But in tearing off the scab, we allow the wound to be flushed with healing power. To speak is to open the door to let a ray of light in. Yes, that light will expose something in your past and of your story that is difficult and painful and ugly to you. But that truth, this truth will slowly begin to set you free. To speak is to embrace a life of connection instead of a life of disconnection. A life of passion instead of apathy. A life of trust, not control. It is a brave and beautiful choice to decide I want to come alive 
under the protection and the safety of the good news of the gospel. The gospel doesn't take away the abuse, but over time, the gospel can actually be the reorienting narrative of your life. But you have to tell the story. And the context of this telling is in the community, amongst the community of God's people. Sexual assault is a relational and human betrayal, and therefore healing must involve relationships. Let me say this, though, as an aside, and a very important one. Do not share your story casually. Be careful who you tell this to. There are abusers here. Make no bones about it. And there are people who don't know how to handle it, and they cannot carry it. Don't share too much too quickly. Find someone who is safe and who is worthy. Remember earlier I said your chooser might be broken. Part of the relational pain that you endure, like the disorientation is you don't know who's safe anymore. So if I could be so honored or someone, one of the elders or someone who you trust here to help you find a good counselor, to point you to the right books, to help guide you towards the right loving friends, to supportive small groups of people who may be invited into your story over time. To you who are in the community, when you are given this honor of walking along with someone and bearing their story with them, the call for you is to gently, slowly, respectfully move towards them. Tamar's community silenced her and gave her idiotic advice. Don't take it to heart. That's idiotic. Here's some other things that are idiotic to not say. I know how you feel. It will take time, but you'll get over it. Why don't you tell me more about what happened? That's not your right to ask that. It's going to be all right. It doesn't feel all right. You need to forgive and move on. That's a violation of what the Bible says about forgiveness. Out of tragedies, good things come. It was God's will. What is striking in the account of Tamar is no one moves towards her as an image bearer. Her father is angry. Great. You got angry. You notice, David doesn't call her. He doesn't hug her. He doesn't bring her into his home. When, when Amnon pretended to be sick, guess what happened? David came running. Absalom stuns her and sticks her in a room and says, don't think about it. But no one moves towards her as a beautiful, aggrieved image bearer of God that she is. And the church, the beautiful church, when the Tamars come out and share, we go running to them. Not away. Here are things to say that would be helpful. I'm so sorry. I hear you. I believe you. Thank you for honoring me and by telling me this. How can I help you? I'm so glad talking about this. Are you safe now? This was not your fault. I've never been more proud of you. I've never been more amazed by you. The beautiful community is something more like this. I heard the story by this past week by a pastor in a denomination named Ray Cortez who shared this. He said about a pastor friend of his who was abused by a neighbor when he was a boy. 
This was then the context that led into all kinds of homosexual behavior in his teen years. Then he went to the merchant marines, which meant he was at every port around the world, which was opportunity to engage in all sorts of aberrant sexual behavior. Pornography became a steady part of his life. When he was 20 years, 20 years old, he had a next-door neighbor who was attractive to him. She was married, but he decided he wanted to try to seduce her. Her husband was out of town often. He was such a train wreck. But in going after this next-door neighbor, she deflected his advances and instead changed the subject, asking him to take a paraplegic friend to an event she couldn't get herself to. And because he wanted to impress the neighbor lady, he said, sure. It turns out that the event she wanted to go to was church. And so over the next couple weeks, he would pick this paraplegic lady up, take her to church, and he would hear the gospel of Jesus. And one day, Christ invaded his soul. He got married eventually. He went to seminary to become a pastor. One day, sitting in their home, his wife said this, There is a closet in your life, perhaps a full bedroom, to which I have never been welcome. I think it's time for you to let me in. He put his head down and his hands on his head in shame and fear of what was about to happen. And he told her that he was horribly addicted to pornography. Then he told her his past, beginning about the molestations as a child. He told her about his teenage sexual encounters. And he told her about the activities in the merchant marine. Out poured this life like an oozing wound of degradation and shame. At the very moment he expected that she would slap him in the face and walk away, he had not told her any of these things. He had not been honest about his past or his present. Instead, she lifted up his chin and she looked in his eyes and she said, I love you more than ever. You are my husband. We are going to work this through. You are a beautiful man to me. He said in that moment, that's the first time he truly understood the gospel. What do you see and hear in that woman's actions? She moved towards him. She lifts him up. She affirms his identity in the Lord. She delights in his image bearing. She affirms her relationship with him. I'm going nowhere. This is what the beautiful community does. Brothers and sisters, those of you who have been victimized of this, one last thing to say to you. The choice to grieve your story is lastly a profession of faith and hope in the word. Things can be significantly better on this side of heaven. I would long for you to experience that. But we must also realize that all tears are not wiped away until he returns. So we groan in pain because the painful is still painful. But we also groan in hope because we know what is to come. Godly grief, remember the Spirit indwells you. Godly grief is the groan of the Holy Spirit inside of you. And while you may not see any explanation for your pain, the Spirit knows there is an answer and lovingly communicates your pain to your sovereign God who listens. He is strong, and he, not the evil done to you, will have the final say about who you are. I hold out the hope of healing to you. Mourning is not the final word. Resurrection is. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, for many in this room, the weight of this is like I felt. (laughs) This is not like just drinking from a fire hose. This feels like the fire hose is sitting on top of us. For those right now who feel burdened and there is a deep grief and sorrow, don't relieve it too quickly. Would you allow the tears to well up towards you? To, to, to make them come crying out to you. For those feeling a burden right now because they long to see your healing come, I pray that that would compel them to move towards, towards the broken and the hurting, to be a welcoming place and an inviting place. Spirit, I, I have perhaps opened up deep wounds today. And I don't know that I'm able to salve them in 45 minutes. But you can over a lifetime, which, so would you bring your healing power even now? I commit every image bearer in this room to you. They are yours. Amen.